Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the way that your word finds us where we are and for the way that it gives us language to speak back to you. Lord, we thank you for the season of Lent, which helps us to to reflect, to reflect upon ourselves, to to reflect upon our brokenness and our pain, to reflect upon our loss, and to look forward to the dawn. Lord, I pray that you would help me to hide behind your cross this morning and that we would hear from you and not merely the voice of a man. Lord, that you would speak to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last night, when I was making final preparations for the sermon today, I was doing a little bit of searching online for some articles about the war in Ukraine. And I came across one from Christianity Today where they were interviewing um, evangelical church leaders and asking them to give an on-the-ground perspective to their readers to tell us a little bit about what was going on, what they were concerned about, ways that we could get involved, and also what they were praying for. As I skimmed through the article, one particular prayer stuck out to me. It was from Alexander Geshenko, the president of Odessa Theological Seminary. He said this, I am praying through the rage of an almost tangible pain. Instead of my seminary routine, I am an emergency volunteer. Our lives have been smashed, our souls have been burnt, and there is no end in sight. For the wholeness of our country to be restored, we need God to give spiritual insight and moral clarity to the world. Then this storm can turn against the oppressors and disperse them. That first phrase that he uses, that he's praying through his rage, caught me off guard. Here was a man who was likely looking around at the suffering of his people, the dismantling of all the things he had worked so hard to build and lead. And he took all of that emotion and anger that came up in him and he focused it skyward. Now, though I know it true in theory that, scriptures, that the scriptures encourage us to be our full emotional selves before God, It's not something that I'm actually used to doing in practice. I'm far more accustomed to bottling up my anger and trying to process things logically. I can remember some of my most emotional prayers, prayed mostly out of desperation or sorrow, but directing my anger to God is something that's unfamiliar to me. I found myself wondering, what would it take What kind of situation would I have to be in to be compelled to do the same? How much heartbreak would I have to suffer before the niceness filter came off of my prayers and I just let God have it with how I was feeling? If the world were suddenly upended on me, would I even have the language to form those prayers? Well, in the scripture passages that we're looking at this morning, And we are taking quite a scan between Job chapter 3 to 37. We're going to have a look at some of that kind of language modeled for us. But I think as we take a closer look, we'll also find that the book of Job is hiding a few surprises for us and challenges as well. 
Turn with me first to to Job chapter 2, verse 11. Now we're picking up where we left off last week in the middle of Job chapter 2. In case you're just joining us, last week we met a man named Job, likely a contemporary of Abraham, who is a righteous man living in the land of Uz. He's healthy, wealthy, and wise. A good man who is faithful to God and faithful in prayer. He is, even by God's own account, in chapter 1, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. We also learn that in heaven, God and Satan strike a terrible bargain. Satan claims that the only reason why Job is so righteous and follows after God and so faithful to him is because God has protected him and blessed him. Stretch out your hand, he says, and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So God allows Satan to test Job, first by bringing disaster upon his house, destroying all his possessions, and killing his seven sons and three daughters. When Job still does not sin or charge God with wrongdoing, Satan is granted permission to touch Job's body with disease and sores. Still, even then, Job is faithful to God. Even Job's wife, who is likely heartbroken and mourning herself, says to Job in, verse two, in, in chapter 2, verse 9, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, it says, Job did not sin with his lips. Which brings us to the beginning of the verses that we'll be focusing on today. Here in verse 11, we see Job's three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. They hear what happens to Job, and they come together to go to him and to comfort him. And it says, when they saw him from a distance, they didn't even recognize him. And they raised their voices toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Everything that Job had has been taken away from him. His possessions, his children, his health. His friends find him a broken man. They barely even recognize him. They're so shocked that they even begin to weep and end up just sitting in silence with him for a full week. And that is pretty much the only thing they did right. We'll get to that in just a moment. Now, Job, in his pain and his heartbreak, finally speaks the words that we heard in the reading today. He wishes that he'd never been born, saying in Job 3.3, Let the day perish on which I was born. And cries out in verse 11, Why did I not just die at birth? He goes on to even hint that he wishes that God would just get it over with and kill him already. Saying in verses 20 to 21, Why is light given to him who is in misery? And life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures. Now, before we go any further, I want us to keep in mind two things, two critical things that are the key to understanding the book of Job. First, 
We know, because of the first two chapters of Job, that Job is innocent, and he's done nothing to deserve any of this. Second, at the end of the book of Job, in, in chapter 42, verse 7, God himself vindicates Job's words. It says that the Lord says to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, why do I say that? Because it's important to remember that God is saying that Job's protestations, his complaint that his situation is unfair, his anger directed at God are all true. And God wants that kind of honesty from us. God is not offended by our honesty. He wants us to bring our full selves to him. I think the first thing that God wants us to learn this morning is that he wants us to feel fully free to be ourselves with him. In Job, we find the freedom to complain to God about situations that feel profoundly unfair. Now, this is a particular struggle for those of us who have grown up thinking that our prayers are supposed to sound a certain way and that there are certain things you can and cannot say out loud. But the book of Job shatters all those notions and it challenges us to be fully honest with our prayers and our complaints. Now, Job's three friends, who again have been sitting with him and mourning with him for, three, for, for seven days, they hear Job's complaint, and they feel compelled to respond. Eliphaz goes first, and this kicks off a pattern that runs through the bulk of the book of Job, where Job's friends will, in various ways, try their best to answer Job and make sense of the situation that he finds himself in. Eliphaz is by far the most eloquent of the bunch, and here in chapter 4, he tells Job in verse 7, Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? And again, in verse 17, can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Well, that last part sounds like good, sound theology, right? Romans 3, chapter 20, sorry, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all had friends like this. You know, this is the guy who, who knows what he's talking about, who's read some really important books. This is the friend who went to seminary, and she graduated with honors. They are really worried because we just said some things out loud that you're not supposed to say, thoughts that you're not supposed to think, and they, they just want to help. But Eliphaz is not just talking about an abstraction. Just in case Job misses his meaning, he goes on in chapter 5, verse 6. He says, For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout up from the ground. And again in verse 17 to 18, Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves or disciplines. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. Now, did you catch what he's implying? He is eloquent. His words are gently making his point. Job, what happened to you is terrible. What did you do? This is the discipline of God, and you're not alone in this. I mean, you know, all of us have sinned and some, somehow, you know, maybe in ways that we don't even know. 
Repent, brother, and everything will be right again. Well, Job, very rightly in chapter 6, answers back and says, uh, no, I haven't done anything. This is, this, is, this is happening to me. I'm innocent. God is doing this, and I don't know why. Well, Bildad, his second friend, is the next to respond. And in chapter 8 and following, he says, How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind. Does God pervert justice? Or does the Almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, he has, tr- he has delivered them into the hand of their transgression. Bildad is the friend that thinks they're doing you a favor by trying to shoot straight with you. They are blunt, they're matter of fact, and often altogether unhelpful in painful situations. I should say before going on that this guy just makes me tired. Seriously, every time his name came up in the book as I was studying it, I just thought to myself, what a jerk. (laughs) Basically, he's saying to Job, look, you're the one in the wrong. Your children got what they deserved, and so did you. There's only one way out of this. You need to repent. Zophar, his third friend, is not much better. In Job chapter 11, he says, for you say, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in God's eyes. But oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you, and that he would tell you the secrets of his wisdom, for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts from you less than your guilt deserves. This is the guy who tries to compare your situation to others that are worse than you to somehow make you feel better, but just ends up coming across like he's trying to make you feel guilty for talking about your problem in the first place. Basically, he's saying, hey, buddy, it could be a lot worse. Count yourself lucky that God didn't punish you more for whatever it is that you did. And so it goes, with each friend taking turns three times, confronting Job with some supposed wrongdoing that he somehow missed, and Job protesting his innocence each time, and then taking his complaint to God. Job keeps answering, I have nothing to repent from. I am innocent, and God is doing this to me for no reason. This goes on for the bulk of the book, with the friends each getting increasingly frustrated with Job that he won't just fess up to whatever he did to deserve this, and Job becoming increasingly angry at them and at God for the unfairness of his situation, all the way up to chapters 23 through 31, where Job fully lays out his case before God. So we come back to the point that I made earlier, that basically the only thing that Job's Job's friends did right in this situation was when they showed up and just sat silently with him. As soon as they started speaking, they just kept going from bad to worse. And the reality is, many of us have all been one of those friends at one time or another. We've all been on both the receiving and the giving end of advice delivered in terrible ways and with some really poor timing. But I think the book of Job is trying to do more than just say to us, don't be that guy. Because the things that Job's friends are saying are actually technically true. You can find plenty of verses in, the old, in both the Old and New Testament 
that would back up the idea that God justly meets out punishment for the wicked and blesses those who are righteous. Deuteronomy 28, for example, lays out in brutal clarity that if the people faithfully obey God, they will be blessed. And if they disobey, they will be cursed. In fact, the curses that Job experiences are strikingly similar to the curses that are laid out there in Deuteronomy 28, right down to the curse of the boils in Deuteronomy 28, verses 27 and 35. Each of the friends keeps advising Job formulaically. If you just do right, you will get blessings. If you commit sin, you'll get curses. You're being cursed, so you must have sinned and need to repent. But remember, we already know that Job is innocent. We know why Job is being tormented, but Job and his friends do not. Job doesn't have the benefit of insight into the heavenly bargain. He never gets that reassurance. We know it because we're the reader. He does not. And in the face of unexplainable and tragic circumstances, we all often resort to trying to find solutions and answers that make sense of senseless situations. Job's friends are not just terrible comforters. They are also desperately trying to hold fast to a particular worldview, a formula for success where good people always ultimately get rewarded and the wicked are always punished. They are terrible friends because their theology has made them cruel and blinded them to the friend who they know well and is sitting right in front of them. Job's situation flies in the face of what they believe and likely makes them feel threatened. And their defensiveness further entrenches cruelty into their theology. The televangelist Pat Robertson famously said once that he believed that the reason why Haiti had suffered so much from earthquakes and hurricanes was because they once made a pact with the devil to get out of slavery and oppression by the French. He basically said that their current suffering must have been because of some past national sin. But this kind of broken theology is not limited to cartoonish TV figures. We do the same thing. Deep within our minds is a hardwired formula that bad behavior translates into punishment and good behavior translates into reward. That kind of theology is ultimately trying to put God in a box and say what he is allowed and not allowed to do. It's a theology of control, not a genuine seeking after God. Kate Bowler, in her TED Talk, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, describes how after her cancer diagnosis, many well-meaning Christians tried to help her and her husband understand that there must be some divine plan behind her sickness. They would trot out verses like, he causes all things to work together for the good, Or say nice platitudes like, every time God closes a door, he opens a window. But those axioms did not square with the senselessness of the cancer and the threat of leaving her newborn son motherless. Once, when a friend said to her her husband, God must have a reason 
for what you're going through. They were left stammering when he asked simply in reply, well, I would love to hear it. What is the reason that my wife is dying in the next room? The fact is that God is not interested in theology that fits together nicely and somehow tries to defend him from complaints on uncomfortable questions. He wants honest theology, theology that acknowledges its limitations. Again, he not only wants honesty in our prayers, he wants honesty in our theology. But I think that the book of Job goes even further. The fact is that the author wants us to know, again, without a shadow of a doubt, that what has happened to Job is unfair. That we can say it out loud. He does not want us to dance around the reality of the situation with empty platitudes or half-truths. He wants us to face the profound wrongness of the situation head on. In Job chapter 13, Job once again makes his point, and he says that he's determined to argue his case before God. He says, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, friends, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. And in verse 13, let me have silence, and I will speak, and let come on me what may. Why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he may slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. As if to say that Job is so convinced that he is right, that God is being unfair to him, that he's, wi he's willing to risk being destroyed for saying it directly to him. In fact, I think we're supposed to feel like coming to Job's defense here. I think we're supposed to look at the first two chapters of Job and say, hey, that's not right. I think we're supposed to look at the first two chapters of Job and say, I don't really like what God is up to here. That's not fair. I don't want you to miss this. Job is determined to be fully honest in his prayers. He is fully honest in his theology. And in the end, they make, that makes him fully honest honest with his struggle to maintain faith. He doggedly hangs on to a God who is being unfair to him. He never gives up wanting to bring his complaint directly to him. His hope, even after all this, is still in God. The question at the heart of Job is not just how we will react when life is unfair. It's not even just interrogating the theology of fairness. The book of Job asks us to consider the question, would we still have faith in God if he is unfair? Or another way of putting it, do we have faith in God just because he blesses us or acts in a way that we can understand? Or do we have faith in God simply because he is God. This, I think, is what God wants us to hear this morning from the book of Job. God challenges us to hang on to him 
even when life is unfair. The fact of the matter is that there are just things that happen that are not right. They do not have a neat reason. Maybe there is some, something happening unseen that we don't know about, but maybe not. From Job's perspective, there is just no answer for this. It doesn't make any sense. And, if I might be frank, it is not okay. Creation has been stretched like a steel cable which has suddenly snapped and is whipping around indiscriminate about who it smashes and wounds. There is collateral damage from the fall. We must be honest enough to acknowledge that the world is unfair. We must, because without that kind of brutal honesty, people will simply stop listening to us about the good news. Once they see the formula fall apart, we will have left them thin and with no answers. Many of you know about my brother-in-law, Bryson, and the brain injury that he suffered as a child. His parents one day had a little boy that was way ahead of all the development goals and markers, and the next, they were holding their little boy who could no longer control his body because of global nervous system damage. They had done everything right. They had been faithful. They had been good. This was not fair. Yes, it is true that the boy that the doctors had once said would never be able to walk or speak was eventually, finally, able, after many years of hard work and treatment, he was able to walk unassisted and even play a modified form of Little League baseball. And yes, he will, completely unprompted, often tell you in no uncertain terms that you are an idiot if you don't root for the New York Yankees and the New England Patriots. I get called an idiot a lot. But it's also true that most of the time, things are very, very hard still. Bryson is now in his 30s, and he still has many, many other painful challenges. It is still very plainly not fair. And you know what? It is really hard to keep praying for that situation to get any better. It is really hard to even keep bringing it up with God because it seems so hopeless. It is really hard to hang on to God in the midst of that. It is far easier to just not think about it at all. But God challenges us to hang on to him even when life is unfair. God challenges us to hang on to him, as Job does, even when it seems like he is unfair. But Miguel, I hear you asking, how? How do we hang on? Well, the bargain at the beginning of the book, Satan's claim was that Job was only being good and faithful because God had blessed him. Instead, Here we find that Job is still holding fast and being faithful even though God has been unfair to him. As a matter of fact, just to fast forward briefly to the end of the book, even when God answers Job out of the whirlwind in chapters 38 to 41, he never gives Job a reason for what happened. And still Job remains faithful. Satan lost 
the bargain. The book of Job can be seen not only as a story of a man, but also a parable, referring to the nation of Israel. Israel, who became a people of the book in exile, who are reading this book while suffering under oppression caused by their fathers, who are trying to stay true to God but seeing little reward in the way of being returned to the promised land. Israel, who when they returned to the land realized that the exile was not really over and who wondered when all of these promised blessings would come for their faithfulness under the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and the Romans. But the book of Job can also be seen as pointing forward, forward to Jesus, who acts as the true friend in the midst of our suffering. Jesus, who sits with us and weeps with us in the face of death and pain. Jesus, who goes to the cross as an innocent man, who was faithful in every way and deserved blessings, but got curses instead. Jesus, who remains faithful to God for us. Jesus, who hangs on to God right until the end. Satan lost that bargain badly. This, then, is our hope in the midst of a world that is unfair. We have a God who comes near to our suffering and weeps with us. We have a God in Jesus who rises again from the dead to defeat death and set us free from fear. We have a God in the Holy Spirit who stays near us in our suffering and comforts us and teaches us. We have a God that gives us strength to hang on when we have none on our own. And we have a God who refuses to fit into our theologies and who wants our honest prayers. We have a God who welcomes our struggles with faith and who is not afraid of our questions. And we have a God who challenges us to hang on to him, but proves that he will go to any lengths to hang on to us even if it means dying for us. This, dear friends, is the hope of Lent. The night will not last forever. Easter is coming, and soon the sun will rise. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning with our questions. Lord, I'm sensitive to the fact that maybe even by opening these words, Lord, this stirs in us pain that we don't know what to do with, but Lord, we bring it to you and we ask you to give us an answer. And if you will not give us an answer, Lord, then hang on to us and give us strength. Show us your face, Lord Jesus, and come near to us. Help us to see you weeping with us. And help us to find a hope in the empty tomb and the rising again at the end of Lent. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.